the title of this talk is Knowing How to Be Happy Prudence in the Thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. As the title suggests, I will argue that for St. Thomas, prudence is one of the most important virtues for us to fulfill ourselves, to find happiness, and to develop real freedom. St. Thomas describes prudence in the Summa Theologiae as love discerning a right, that which helps from that which hinders us from tending to God. Prudence is to St. Thomas the virtue of the practical intellect that uniquely helps to perfect the moral act. To see why I'm claiming that in St. Thomas, prudence is important to our overall achievement of happiness and freedom, we have to see how St. Thomas understands happiness and how moral acts relate to our happiness and freedom. Why is a right moral action crucial to us? What is right moral action? Who determines what is right moral act? Is it our conscience that determines what is morally right? Is it God? Is it societal or psychological determinants? These are questions that are obviously debated today in ethics and moral theology. Ultimately, the answers to these questions are determined by certain views about God and man. Since we want to understand today prudence according to St. Thomas Aquinas, we're going to have to establish a few things about God, man, and the world that St. Thomas presupposes in his treatment of prudence. What do I mean that how we see God and man could alter what we understand about freedom, happiness, and prudence? More recent scholars in uh, Thomistic studies have shown in various ways that a philosophically modern view of the moral life tends to see positive law and duty or obligation as the primary principles of moral decision-making, placing conscience in a central role and leaving virtue in general and the virtue of prudence in particular as Aquinas had understood it in the shadows. Undergirding this view of the moral life is a philosophical anthropology that has dualist tendencies, I'll say, and an overall worldview that has shifted away from certain aspects of classical realist metaphysics. The modern philosophical views I'm alluding to are well known to all of us, I'm sure. They include idealism, materialism, empiricism, deontology, and other isms. The main point that I want to make here is that the effects of philosophical shifts in ethics toward conscience-centered conscience morality brought casuistry to the fore. Casuistry is the case-based moral reasoning. Happiness as the goal of our moral actions to the background and tended to gut the meaning of virtue as St. Thomas understood it. In this particular vein, Thomistic prudence ends up sounding like the application of abstract laws to individual life situations, aloof from the need to consider personal experience. Prudence is interpreted as rule-following, cautiousness, or moral rigidity. And it makes it difficult to see in this light how prudence really relates to happiness and instills greater freedom. Being prudent in this more modern light could seem to actually rob us of our freedom. Plenty of prevalent perspectives on morality, for example, see Thomistic moral theology as a failure in considering the difficulties and nuances of real-life situations. There is another familiar strain of thought that has reacted to the effects of modern ethics, 
and in name has reacted to Thomistic theology, but that ultimately derives from the same presuppositions as modern philosophy. According to this, that which is right morally does relate directly to our happiness and freedom, but it is our subjective conscience alone that determines the right thing to do. And so prudence ends up seeming like nothing but a subjective realization of our own desires. And happiness is basically autonomy, understood as the personal expression of our own self-determined freedom. Neither of these strains of moral thought that I'm describing very broadly are helpful to grasping prudence according to St. Thomas Aquinas. Neither of them really help to see how prudence as St. Thomas understands it relates to our happiness. The problem for us, for me right now then, is to present an understanding of prudence according to St. Thomas as it really is. To face this problem, I'll examine a few preliminary concepts, namely the rationality of human persons, syndaresis, happiness, and freedom, and then I'll delve into prudence itself. As I'm sure you know, St. Thomas starts his treatment of the second part of the Summa, the section that deals primarily with the moral life of men and women, with the treatment on happiness. He asks three main questions regarding happiness. One, do all men seek happiness? Two, if they do seek happiness, in what does this happiness consist? And three, how do we attain to this happiness? Aquinas begins his inquiry about whether or not all men seek happiness by asking if all men act for ends. He brings to light that the human capacity to choose what we do freely shows that we innately act with purpose when we act specifically humanly. If you ask someone why they just twitched, the answer might be, I didn't twitch on purpose. I can't help it when I twitch. That twitch was involuntary. So it has no meaning because it has no end in view. On the other hand, if I were to stop and ask someone on the street where they are going, they would likely answer with an end location that they are seeking. Walking is usually voluntary, so it has an end in view. We walk in a specific direction to arrive at a specific end. We take for granted that our movement that is purposeful or deliberate or voluntary is so because it has an end. It is ordered to an object, and it is therefore at least somewhat intelligible once we know the object or the end sought. Movement that is guided by reason and will, that is movement that is rational and freely chosen, necessarily has an end inherent to it. Voluntary or free human action then has two components. Reason that identifies an end and orders to the end and desire that gives the impetus to seek and move toward an end established by reason. St. Thomas has then established that we act for an end when we act. And then he asks, if all men and women act for ends when they act voluntarily, could we be seeking many disparate ends unrelated to each other each time we act? So this time I act, I'm seeking food. The next time I act, I'm seeking comfort. This time I act, I'm seeking to make money, et cetera, et cetera. Aquinas keenly observes that each of these ends, food, fame, comfort, and any other end we could name of this sort, is never sought as an end in itself, but always constitutes a means to a further end. 
What do we really want when we seek food, fame, or a good reputation? What do we really want when we seek wealth? These goods are driven by something else. If man did not have a further final end, indeed, he would stop choosing means of any and all sorts at all. After excluding a number of possible ends that could drive men to choose various things, Aquinas follows Aristotle in observing that all men ultimately act for the one happiness. Now, what kind of happiness are men seeking that we all seek? The immateriality of the intellectual soul that we have is what permits our human rationality, which in turn specifies us and defines our human relationship to the world, permits our freedom, and ultimately gives us what Thomas sometimes call a special obediential capacity for the beatific vision. St. Thomas describes that the intellectual light itself in us is nothing else than a participated likeness of the uncreated light. That is, the light of our intellect is a created participation in the light of God. The will is the appetite proportionate to the intellect's capacity for truth. And so for us to intimately know and understand on the rational level, that is to participate the truth of things, is also the fulfillment of our profoundest desires. St. Thomas then believes that human happiness must consist in some kind of vision or comprehension or understanding, we might say, of something that is all true and all good, that in our understanding of it, we take complete and total rational delight. In this aspect of ourselves, we are in the image of God, who is supremely happy in knowing and loving himself. Happiness, therefore, is what we also call beatitude, and beatitude is the perfect good of an intellectual nature. Human happiness is what we might call a transcendent and divine happiness, not a happiness attained through satisfying appetites of our lower soul, but through rational knowledge and love of the highest truth who is God. It was also clear to Aquinas, and it probably is to all of us listening, that no man finds perfect bliss in this life, and yet no man or woman stops desiring it. We see evidence of this in as much as every kind of temporal pleasure fails to satisfy us in any ultimate way. The human happiness I just described could also be called a moral happiness in as much as it is rooted in our, in our rational nature and by the same light of the intellect by which we participate and understand the truth and desire the truth with our will, we grasp first principles. We grasp first principles spontaneously through our intellectual contact with reality. We intuit first principles immediately and without any effort by the very intellectual light by which we apprehend anything. In explaining the light of first principles, St. Thomas insists that their universality cannot be explained, one, as a participation in a common intellect for all, so we don't all plug into one intellect in some way, nor do first principles require a direct intervention by God in the act of knowing. The universality of our human knowledge among all men and women has its foundation in the common way that our intellects relate, relate to reality which is by the participated light of first principles. So this means a few things. This means one that for us, 
Knowing is a personal activity for each man, according to St. Thomas, and it is also a common action that we all share. So as a bear hibernates in the winter and a salmon swims upstream, we could say that human beings, those of us endowed with spiritual faculties, naturally grasp first principles, even if some first principles could be lost or ignored by us. Although the first principles can be presented as formulas, they are not acquired through a process of reasoning and choice. They are the natural instincts specific to rational creatures or to ourselves. The first principles of the practical intellect are called by St. Thomas Sendericis, which is the fundamental knowledge that in acting, we are to do the good and avoid the evil. So morality is inherent or inseparable for us from what it is to be rational. Morality then is not imposed on us from outside. Even within the limitations of our human weaknesses and sin, to strive for moral uprightness is part of our subjective and personal realm. By nature, we act with a certain dignity, you could say, to be co-knowers with God, even if our knowledge of what is good and true is very limited compared to God's. Being capable of free choice and at the same time hardwired to seek happiness in a final end that we don't easily attain to or immediately know constitutes a problem for us too. We all look for happiness and we tend to do it in the wrong places. We might say that our subjective experience and search for what will make us happy does not always coincide with our objective end. St. Thomas gives us an idea, then, of what is requisite to actually achieve happiness. We have to not only want to be happy, we have to learn to love the right things, the things that really will lead us to God and not away from him. And this includes, for St. Thomas, the rectitude of our ap appetites. So happiness requires the rectitude of our appetites. In other words, he thinks we have to be prepared for what with grace would be the ultimate vision of God. We have to be prepared so that we may see aright and not only to see God aright, but to love aright, since knowledge and desire are both prerequisites for our enjoyment of final happiness. I'd ask you to note that for St. Thomas, reaching our final happiness is at its essence an interior preparation. So he doesn't describe it in terms of following external commands or laws, even though St. Thomas sees law as having a very important role in attaining to our human good. Yet, when he's talking directly about happiness, he does not speak in terms of law as the prerequisite to attaining the vision of God. He speaks primarily of loving a right and knowing a right. The interior preparation that I am alluding to is really that of happy, of virtue. So St. Thomas tells us that two things direct our moral choices, what we know and what we love. And in moral action, voluntary action, it is the end that is the principal or initiator of the actions. St. Thomas often says the object first in intention is last in execution when we're talking about a moral action. This means that what we love and what we know 
are inextricably linked for St. Thomas, and both need to lead us ultimately to know and enjoy God. So then how do we know what is right to love so that it will eventually yield to greater sight of the good? And this leads us to a discussion of habits or virtues. The nature of moral habits should not be misunderstood in Aquinas as akin to the ossification of a power, limiting or binding it. Habits for us are necessary to our action, according to St. Thomas. By habits, each human power may intensify and perfect what we might call its natural seed or its natural ability to act. A habit permits that a power be used more easily and effectively to accomplish an act we desire to accomplish. Habits, therefore, put the powers of our souls more readily at our disposal. We might say they give us a certain freedom. When a power of soul is oriented to the good of our the whole man, our whole self, through a habit, we call it a virtue. Since our will guides human action in moving the powers to act, the development of habits is determined most by what we love as a final end. If we seek constantly in wealth by the capital vice of covetousness or avarice, for example, our thoughts would be and our actions would be repeatedly formed by the desire for the acquisition of wealth. And the light of our intellect would be focused on wealth and whatever pleasure we derive from possessing the wealth. Now, what have I said so far? I have said that all men, because they are rational and possess the capacity of free choice, act for an end when they act voluntarily, and that the end we aim for ultimately is to experience happiness. We have also said that men can be good as men, and some can be less so, depending on whether or not they attain to what really leads to happiness. We have finally claimed that St. Thomas, in the way in which he tells us that in the way in which men exercise their capacity for free choice, either achieves our happiness well and truly, or that our drive for happiness, while it pushes us to act, fails, we fail in achieving it. And this is where prudence enters. Supported by the other moral and supernatural virtues and grace, prudence is the virtue that governs and assures us of carrying through with good free choices, presupposing our rationality and voluntariness is ordered inherently to true and universal goodness, as we just looked at. From the very broadest perspective, good human acts are those by which a man or woman knowingly and freely cooperates with and participates and the dynamic ordering of the universe established by God, which we could call that ordering of participation in the eternal law. The persons who follow natural law and divine law, both participations in the eternal law, are the persons who fulfill their own deepest intrinsic desires. Thus, to negate natural law or divine law is not really to overlook an abstract or an extrinsic rule imposed on us, but it is to refuse the fulfillment proper to a human nature or to negate or bow out of the participation, uh, to bow out of participation in the order that God has established 
to lead all things back to himself, the supreme good, or you could say to negate the happiness God has made, given us the potential for. Honing in more closely now to understanding prudence, St. Thomas first wants to pinpoint in what power prudence inheres exactly. Prudence is a virtue that allows us to see the right thing to do in given situations. He says that because a virtue, it is a particular virtue of sight, it is of the cognitive and not the appetitive category of powers. Among the powers that see, prudence must belong to the intellectual and not the sensory powers, since prudence looks ahead to the future, whereas the senses only perceive what is immediately present to them. So if I could see with my bodily eye the future, I would probably be experiencing some kind of delusion. Prudence is not only sight. It is sight about how to act or what to do. So while it belongs to the intellectual power, it is not contemplation of the truth in itself. Prudence is sight that guides contingent actions, that is, actions that do not have to necessarily be or that do not have a necessary relationship to their cause. So what I mean by that is the fruit on trees have a nece- has a necessary relationship to their cause. An apple branch cannot produce any other fruit than an apple. A human embryo will not develop into any other species than human. These kinds of movements are necessary movements. When we contemplate truth by our intellect, we are not considering what might be in one way or another, but what actually is. Prudence, on the other hand, is a vision of what might be, and more precisely, what we may or may not bring into being. It guides the creation of acts that could be or not be. Prudence, therefore, belongs not generically to the intellect, but specifically to the practical intellect. It does not examine our potential acts, however, inasmuch as they are causes of effects external to ourselves, which is the intellectual habit called an art. In any free action that we perform, we have seen that the end guides the act or is the principle of the act. So for a shipbuilder, how he builds the ship is determined by his final goal. If he intends to carry cargo in a ship on one of the Great Lakes, he will build the ship in one particular way. If he intends the ship to be a vacation cruise liner in the Caribbean, he will build the ship in another way. A wise shipbuilder is the one who in the category or genus of shipbuilding understands the end for which he is building well. Prudence is concerned with things that ought to be done or avoided inasmuch as these things pertain to fulfilling ourselves as men and women. We have to know then, to be prudent, the final cause of human affairs, if we are up to, to obtain it. We have said that ultimately knowing and loving God is the activity that belongs properly to us as an end, in as much as we are human beings. But unlike speculative sciences or arts, there is no one necessary way to obtain our human end. So there's not actually a science of prudence. The virtue of prudence is a virtue proper only to the person who is uniquely able to act freely in regard to the possible ways to attain his own end. 
which subjectively coincides with his own happiness. The human person does this only progressively and freely. Angels don't act in time to attain their true end and their happiness. Angels chose whether or not to freely participate in God's life and plan for creation once and for all. It is we, human persons, who progressively and temporally choose the ways that will lead to our final end or not. In this sense, prudence's rational sight that we might say bridges universal principles or the metaphysical part of reality that our intellect is proportionate to and particular contingent situations which includes the temporal aspects of reality in which our body and our senses are firmly rooted and that our body and our senses are involved in our perception of. And here our passions are tied in uh, more closely as well. So prudence is a virtue that allows us to compare rational knowledge, ideas, and principles with instantiated singular experiences and situations in which we may or may not act or situations in which we may be the cause of effects interiorly to ourselves as well as exterior effects. So prudence uniquely bridges among the virtues. It has a unique role to bridge the lower and the higher powers of our souls in a way that the speculative reason does not do. And prudence spans time in a way that the speculative intellect does not do. If I am contemplating truth, then it is eternal. Prudence looks ahead to the future of what has not yet been done, weighing up what is present and compares it with what is past. So prudence integrates our temporal bodily reality with universal knowledge of true and good as such. And you can see here what I'm hinting at is that if you had a dualist perspective between the mind and the body, you would definitely disrupt the meaning of prudence. Because prudence is exercised in the midst of temporal and contingent situations, it is a virtue that grows and deepens through memory and judgment about previous experiences. So the prudent person is one who has learned from past decisions and actions how to improve his future decisions. This requires a very particular, what I'll call level-headedness or rationally sound assessment of previous experiences we've had. Experience in itself could also warp us or embitter us or blind us. Take, for example, the person who travels the whole world and acquires innumerable cultural experiences, but finds himself at the end of his voyage confused and relativistic in his thinking. He may glean from seeing many different religions and cultures a keen understanding of the value of religion to the human person, or he may emerge a skeptic, aloof in his mind from all embodied forms of worship. Prudence, Aquinas next clarifies, is a virtue and not a science, inasmuch as the one who possesses prudence does not perfect something else like he does the learning in the learning of an art, which creates and perfects something outside of him. Nor is prudence a speculative habit, which is concerned with the perfection of knowledge of necessary realities. Prudence is that prudence as a virtue means that the possessor of prudence is made a good man. And what do I mean when I say the possessor of prudence is made a good man? 
being a good person, a good human person, does not mean good in the sense that prudence assures us that our choices will always succeed in the external effects that we intend. An expert carpenter chooses exactly the right tools and has the skills to choose the good in regard to carpentry. But even if he makes fantastic tables or cabinets, he could still be a terrible person who, for example, defrauds his business partners. What is the measure of becoming a good person? A good person is a little bit like a good house or a good education. A good house has to fulfill the purpose for which it was built, to provide shelter. If it is a beautiful house, but it leaks cold air and rain, it is not a good house as a house. Likewise, a good education is not one that the student finds really enjoyable necessarily, but when he's finished his education, he's filled with false ideas. A well-educated person thinks well about how things really are. His education has broadened and deepened his ability to know and judge of realities well. Likewise, to be a world-class runner does not necessarily fulfill our human personhood. Mother Teresa was indisputably a good person, but she might have been a really slow runner. The good person as a person is the one who exercises, grows in, and perfects those qualities specific and unique to being a human person. Or we could say the good person is the one who lives up to what defines being a human person. We have already said that Aquinas sees our capacity to know and love God rationally and as embodied persons, as our unique goodness. This is to Aquinas due to the nature of the powers that are proper to us, the intellect and the will, which are ordered to the transcendent and universal true good who is God and yet within a person who has a body. A virtue then is not only knowing what is good materially, but it is knowing what is good in, formal, in a formal way. That is, it is not enough to be virtue, virtuous to know good things, but you have to love good things, and thus you have to love to do good things to be a good person. We also know that we have different levels of our appetites or our inclinations to the good. The higher appetite in us is the one that is proportionate to the rational good. The lower appetites are all those appetites in us that are moved by the apprehension of particular goods or temporal and material things that are proportionate to whatever appetite it is. These appetites and inclinations have to be ordered in us or they'll eventually tear us apart. So a good person also has the proper ordering of their appetites. If our desire for food and our desire for sleep were not properly ordered, one giving way to the other at the proper time, they'd actually compete with each other. And so ultimately, we have to be, all the appetites in us have to be ordered by reason and will. Virtue, we return to, the moral virtues, is the way that our inclinations are ordered to reason. Disordered appetites, on the other hand, are caused when our reason and will are not the guiding principle of the whole man, and then when our lower appetites take the lead. So as St. Thomas puts it, that in which a man tries to rest as his last end becomes the master of his affections, since he takes therefrom his entire rule of life. Elsewhere, St. Thomas states that prudence depends upon the moral virtues, 
the virtues that adhere in the higher and lower appetites for the rectitude of the appointment of the end. And so again, St. Thomas quotes St. Paul's letter to the Philippians to illustrate what he means. There are those persons whose God is their belly because they place their last end in the pleasures of the belly. And yet we know that this man, whoever he is, who has placed his last end in his belly, is notoriously not only not good, but unhappy, as is the miser who has placed his final good in money and yet finds himself lonely, or the person who constantly needs the good opinion of others to be satisfied and yet who finds himself a slave to fame. Thus, goodness in a person requires rectitude of love as well as knowledge. Or we might say that rectitude of knowledge of the end depends upon right love, and right love, in turn, depends upon right knowledge of the end. So there's a circularity here. To set our loves in order is proper to moral virtue as such. The person who loves good things and acts accordingly becomes good himself, which, of course, presupposes knowledge of good things. And this is because our intellect and our will are deeply wedded within us. Thus, prudence is an intrinsic principle of good action. It is a personal and interiorly possessed principle that guides us. It cannot be possessed through our studying it only. And no study can map out prudent choices as if they were necessary in the way that you could project, let's say, um, you could predict the trajectory of an object in physics. Prudence then has as its special object things to be done from the perspective of the doer of the action. It is action measured as right according to the effect of the action of the man on the man acting. Since prudence resides in the intellect, it regards or sees what is true for a man to do. That is what is good according to what human goodness is as understood. Thus, it is the virtue that perfects our interior. It is a virtue that perfects or helps us to rectify our knowing and loving. Now, St. Thomas asks an interesting question about prudence. He says, does prudence properly determine the end of the moral life? This question taps into many contemporary questions. How do we know what is right for us as individuals? We have said that there is no science of prudence because there is no determinate way or necessary path to human perfection. Doesn't one thing make one person happy and something different make another person happy? Is my human good your human good? Aquinas even says elsewhere that reason appoints the end for the moral virtues, implying perhaps that I choose my own personal final good. The answer here is nuanced in Aquinas. Prudence is a highly personal or subjectively rooted virtue, because in judging what is good for me, I also reason according to my inclinations. The circumstances in which I find myself and the affections and particularities of my soul are unique to me. No one can ultimately substitute for my own prudence in deciding what is right to do for my own life. The end of the, of the moral life is my good as a human being. And this is properly in accord with my personal reason. What unifies the subjective and the objective realms in Aquinas is the nature of human reason and will in relation to external reality. My personal reason is human reason. And human practical reason 
just like human speculative reason, possesses certain naturally known first principles drawn from the truth of existence, we might say. The first principles of practical reason are synergies, which I've already spoken about. Thus, when St. Thomas repeats that reason appoints the end of the moral virtues, he is not referring to the virtue of prudence, though it does adhere in the practical reason, but to the first principles of practical reason, to synderesis, which is grounded in the truth or the reality of being in itself, and which all men participate necessarily, and to the natural law, which is derived from first principles. Therefore, in Aquinas, prudence depends upon the appointment of the end of the moral actions by synderesis, and the moral virtues in turn are perfected by conformity, or perhaps one might say participation in reason as ordering a principle, as an ordering principle and end. And reason tells each appetite that it should act according to reason in order to be rightly ordered to the good of the human person. If the irascible appetite, for example, to say the opposite were to stray from right judgment of reason, either by fear or daring, it ceases to serve the good of the person, which is to act according to reason. Prudence then sets a rule to the appetites that rightly decides how a man will obtain reason in his, in his deeds. So what we're saying is that prudence does not determine the end, it determines the means, or it determines the mean of the moral virtue. But this mean is found by disposing our appetites in such a way that they are directed to reason as an end. Thus, while the speculative reason is ordered to the formation of true judgments, prudence, which is the perfection of the practical reasoning or the moral reasoning, is ordered to go beyond making just a judgment. It is ordered to the command of reason, an act of reason called a command, that concludes in an action. Moral action in regard to objects chosen can be broken down into certain steps or stages, and prudence perfects all of the stages of moral action. And so I'm going to use one particular model with three basic steps necessary to human voluntary action and a potential fourth step. And this basic model says that the first step of moral action is intention, uh, which is the result of apprehensio and intensio, which is an act of the intellect to apprehend and an act of the will to intend or move toward an end. The good is apprehended by the intellect and inclined toward as an end by the will. In seeking how to obtain this end that we have identified, there is a second step. It's a potential second step in St. Thomas, which is called deliberation. And it's the result of concilium or counsel of the intellect and consensus or consent of the will. And then there is a third step in moral action, which is called decision or free choice which is the result of a judicium in Latin or a judgment of the intellect and electio or a movement of the will toward the object chosen as a means. And then the fourth step is the execution of the act, which results from two acts of the intellect and will again, imperium, which is command of reason, and usus or use, which is the act of the will to employ the other powers of the soul to obtain the object desired as a means in order to obtain the end. So among these stages, which I noted are sort of like couplets of acts performed by the intellect and the will, Aquinas sees command as the principal or chief act of prudence, 
And this is so because command is the act of follow through from the judgment, from a judgment of choice into action. In the follow through the command, the will is engaged, which is called use, as we said. And in this, the lower powers and the body are then drawn into or integrated with the judgment of reason. And thereby prudence habituates all the powers of the soul to right ordering according to reason. Solicitude or promptness and watchfulness in doing the good is also proper to prudence. The prudent person acts on the moral good right away. Once he knows the right course of action, he acts quickly to see it through. So he is not anxious about many things, but he is anxious about doing the right thing. Again, this implies a certain habituation in the lower powers to following reason. That is, implies that the moral virtues are present in the lower powers. How could the prudent person work quickly in doing the good, solicitously in doing the good, if his lower powers are rebellious and disordered? We all know the feeling of grasping what is the right thing to do, but finding resistance in our lower powers to carry it out. I know this when my alarm clock goes off in the morning. So the other moral virtues give a person freedom to exercise prudence. And at the same time, prudence inculcates virtue in the lower powers, integrates them into the cause of, we could say, the, the ends of reason. And this way, we can say that prudence helps us to be increasingly free in order to act for our own true good. So then St. Thomas asks a fascinating question. Of course, I'm rephrasing it. Is prudence then all about me? In other words, is being prudent just about my own perfection? Isn't that kind of self-focused? And St. Thomas writes this, some have held that prudence does not extend to the common good of others, but only to the good of the individual. And they thought this because they wrongly thought that man's personal moral good is not bound to seeking the good of others. Or we might say that the individual good and the common good do not overlap. This brings to the fore a critical principle in the thought of St. Thomas in general. To St. Thomas, to seek only one's good is contrary not only to charity, but also to right reason, which judges the common good to be a good for man greater than the good of the individual. In other words, in seeking my true good, I am bound to seek the common good. My individual goodness is inextricably bound to the good of the common. And thus prudence, which we might call right reason about how to obtain the end for me and my personal action, is concerned also necessarily with the common good. He that seeks the good of the common seeks his own good, says St. Thomas. The good which we naturally seek is universal, that is common to all, participatable by all. Nevertheless, St. Thomas does distinguish species of prudence according to what they are chiefly ordered to. For example, there's personal prudence, domestic prudence, and political prudence. If prudence is a ruling virtue, St. Thomas then asks, or a virtue that gives order and directs, could there be prudence in a person who obeys? In other words, can I be truly prudent, deciding for myself what is the right means to obtain a true end, if I am just obeying the command of someone else? Is it not the commanding person who then possesses prudence? Can I be truly prudent, possessing maturity and personal freedom that's inherent to prudence if I'm simply doing what I am told by the church, for example? Prudence commands oneself first. 
before it is renewative prudence or prudence possessed by someone who exercises authority. So the answer is that anyone who possesses rational powers exercises prudence or commands himself to act aright in a given situation. But it may be that obeying the command of another is the right thing to do for my own human perfection. In fact, St. Thomas thinks that docility or teachability is an integral part of prudence. To accept and act upon the counsel or command from another person who has a certain excellence for my for ordering me to my end may be the most prudent way to achieve my own perfection or happiness. Some of you might have noticed that I have not yet mentioned conscience. Conscience is commonly talked about today more than prudence. But about but conscience is often spoken of as the guide of morality instead of prudence. For Aquinas, St. Conscience plays a role in prudence. It factors into moral counsel and judgment in as much as conscience for St. Thomas is an act of the intellect about what is good or not good to do. The problem with entrusting the guidance of all our moral activity to conscience is that conscience does not involve the will in its act. It's not a virtue, so it does not develop the whole person into a good person, including the rectification of love so as to better follow the truth. And this is why Aquinas quotes St. Augustine in saying that prudence is also said to be love because the keen sight of prudence is pushed to direct our actions on account of our desire or love for the attainment of happiness. Prudence is called by Augustine discerning love. Prudence is not only the application of a right rule in a given situation, but it is the knowledge through a certain co-naturality with the good, so that I do the right thing in the midst of temporal and particular circumstances. One could say that prudence is the virtue that can penetrate the transcendent aspect of the present moment. Aquinas does not think that sinners are capable of this. So he doesn't think that sinners have true prudence. The sinner is the person who loves and does what is contrary to his true end. The sinner prefers an end that his lower powers lead him to. A man who loves the wrong end may choose the right means to obtain it, however. And on the surface, he could look prudent in a certain way. A good robber who loves money more than truth may be an expert in choosing how to wrongfully obtain money that does not belong to him. This is not prudence, but St. Thomas says it could be called prudence of the flesh, which St. Thomas says leads to death. Prudence so depends on a detachment from sin that St. Thomas thinks prudence is more opposed to sin than supernatural faith, even though faith is the higher virtue. Faith, he says, consists not in the conformity of the appetite to what is good, but in knowledge alone. Prudence, on the other hand, cannot form a good estimate of the right moral action unless the appetites are ordered. We've said this many times. And it cannot command right actions without right appetites. Because sin arises largely from the disorder of appetites and prudence presupposes and affects the rectitude of the appetites, it is prudence which is more opposed to sin than faith. On the, the, the corollary of this for St. Thomas is that all who have grace have prudence, according to St. Thomas. Because to have grace is to have virtue, and to have virtue is to have prudence. Nevertheless, he also adds that prudence is not natural to us. 
we have to learn prudence. It has to be deepened in us, even when it's infused. Because according to our nature, the nature of a human being, our right final end is fixed, but we are left to free choice and contingent matters in terms of how to obtain the end. There are as many ways to obtain the final end of man as there are people, not because truth is unstable, but because the embodiment of truth into our particular actions is unique to each of us, each man, woman, and child. And this brings us back to our original question. How does happiness relate to our moral life? I began saying that to Aquinas, we necessarily seek happiness in all of our moral activities. All that we do voluntarily, that is, with the use of reason and will, is conditioned, we might say, by the fundamental inclination of our rational appetite toward one universal rational good, who is God. And so the moral life is considered good when it particip participates in the truth and goodness of that end, who is God, ultimately. Is a morally good person really a happy person? Our subjective happiness and the objective good by which we measure what it is to be good persons are not the same, but they do coincide more when we are truly virtuous. By our objective good, of course, I mean the achievement of the good according to what specifies us as men and women. By subjective good, I mean the enjoyment or the complete experience of fulfillment or happiness. We can attain to a true and lasting happiness as opposed to fleeting and elusive happiness is only to a certain degree in this life, however, by learning to love the true good, or that is to love virtuously. To put it in the opposite way, we do not, if we don't attain our objective good for which we were created, or the object or end for which we were created, who is God, then we don't find lasting delight in anything else. The possibility of attaining to even an imperfect happiness in this life is exponentially aided by grace, however, and it is by the virtue of prudence, especially the infused virtue of prudence, that we may have the clarity of inner sight about what choices will best obtain our final end. Prudence is the perfection of the practical or the moral reasoning. This is the person who, with ease and freedom, does the right thing and is also then geared toward real happiness. The centrality of free choice to our human moral development and the relationship of moral development to personal human happiness indicates for us the centrality of prudence to the achievement of beatitude. In more patristic terms, we could say that prudence is clarity of the eye of the heart, allowing the inner eye of man to be trained singularly on God and the things of God. The prudent person is the one who is free to pursue the knowledge and love of God and the common good. The truly prudent man can weigh up his own weakness, and especially by the light of faith, he sees that he needs the grace of Christ to be happy and to love others aright, and that Christ dispenses his graces, often through human mediators. As Garigou Lagrange put it, when the virtue of prudence is infused, it repeats the aims of charity. There's only one thing necessary. And so prudence guides us to use virtues higher than itself, faith, hope, and charity, which are the virtues of contemplation, by which we begin to participate in the happiness of God already in this life. And that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much. <laughs>